Hey Rebels, welcome to episode 153 of the Rebel Rising podcast. And I'm excited to share with you this deep conversation that I had with Jennifer Loudon, all about amplifying women's voices, having the courage to make what you want to make, and even destroy something when it didn't work, even if you've been working on it for years. And finally, how to overcome the expectations that prevent you from creating. Before we dive in a bit about Jennifer, she is a personal growth pioneer who helped launch the concept of self-care with her first best-selling book, The Woman's Comfort Circle. Since then, she's written six additional books on well-being and whole living with millions of copies of her books in print in nine languages. Jennifer has spoken around the globe, has written a national magazine column for Martha Stewart magazine, plus she's been profiled or quoted in dozens of major magazines, two of Brene Brown's books, Daring Greatly and Dare to Lead, and appeared on hundreds of TV, radio shows, and podcasts, and she's even been on Oprah. Jennifer has been teaching women's writing and self-care retreats since 1992 and creating vibrant online communities and innovative learning experiences since 2000. She married the love of her life at 50 and is a profoundly proud-to-be mom to Lillian and bonus mom to Aiden. So grab your notebook and a pen because I know you're going to have a couple of aha moments from this episode. Welcome to the Rebel Rising Podcast, where business owners, speakers, and entrepreneurs have real conversations about making the journey to becoming the next generation of thought leaders and influencers. This is the place to take a stand in your industry, get messy with your message, slay your mindset demons, and grow a profitable business that allows you to make a bigger impact while doing more good. Here's your host, the instigator of three-word rebellion, Dr. Michelle Mazur. Hi, Jen. Welcome to the Rebel Rising podcast. I love the title of your podcast so much. It just makes me sit up and and want to rebel. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, that's really the whole purpose of this show. It's for those of us who are doing things a little bit differently in our business and in our lives to have a place to belong and to come up with new ideas. So I'm thrilled that you love it. (laughs) So my first question for you is all about rebellion. So tell me, what are you rebelling against? Well, I sat down yesterday to reflect on on your questions that you sent, and I found them so really illuminating and, and, and disturbing in a good way, you know, in the way of like, these are important questions. Why haven't I thought about these? I just love the way you worded them. Mm. So what am I rebelling against? Um, there's a number of things. And one of them, I'll just start with a light one, which is this whole idea of a life hack. Um, I understand why some of us want to hack things because sometimes there's a technical solution to something like mm-hmm. you're hacking your smartphone. So you tap on it less or, um, hacking, going to the grocery store. So you don't walk up and down the aisle seven times, but the deeper questions of life, the deeper questions of business, the deeper questions of our souls, when we try to hack them, I think we just do such a violence to ourselves. So I rebel against the life hack when it comes to big, the big, deep questions of life. 
I rebel against women's voices being marginalized. And I especially rebel against us doing it to ourselves. You know, work with so many women writers over the years and, um, you know, kind of two focuses to my business and one of them are are, uh, helping women writers. And some writers I've worked with for, you know, close to 20 years before I can really get them to say, this is my story. This is my voice. This is what I'm a stand for. Now, of course, other people don't take that long. I'm rebelling against becoming a cyborg. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh, my gosh. One of the things I I talk about a lot in in my online community, um, which goes by two names, the Oasis and the Writer's Oasis. We have everybody's creative. Some people have more of a focus on writing Mm -hmm. than others. I talk about this idea of a human scale life, and it feels to me, and it's kind of related to the life hack thing, but not exactly, that it's becoming almost... Um, shameful to be human, to not be able to do everything at maximum speed, productivity, efficiency, day after day. And I don't know about you, but if I spend three or four days at maximum warp speed, I just want to like drink a barrel of tequila. (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree. I feel like we live in this world where it is, I think this is very much related to the life hacks around productivity, where it's Mm. like, we always feel this need to produce and produce and produce and be more and more efficient, which really I think goes back to one of the other things you were saying about how we prevent ourselves from having our own voice. Because if we're always doing things in the like service of efficiency and speed and productivity, we don't have the time to step back and create and find our voice and claim our stories. Right on. Very well said. That's a great connection. I, I, I totally agree. Because I just, I saw like those two just being so hooked together. Mm-hmm. So why do you, yeah, yeah, why do you think we have such problems, especially women claiming our voice and our stories? Well, I mean, if we look at most of human history, at least modern human history, recorded human history, Women have been murdered, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, subjugated, um, belittled, owned. It's very, very new. It's really, I'm 56, so in my lifetime, I have seen the rise of the ability to have a voice, to have a story, to own my own house without having to have someone, a man, co-sign with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, So it's still very new for us to own that. And we don't change as humans as fast as this culture on steroids is changing. My daughter is having a different experience, but she, I still see her struggle with speaking up for things and she's definitely getting better. She's about to turn 25. Yeah. Um, So I think that the history of Western religion is a history of saying women speaking up bad. You're the cause of sin. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this is, even if this isn't our worldview or isn't the story we were raised with or the culture we were raised in, it's still out there. And women being the objects of desire and being taught that our power exists in how we look, what we can manipulate through our looks is, again, a message that is in every single magazine that you pick up. Yeah. Well, and I think you make an excellent point about this still being very, very 
new. Like the fact that we can have credit cards or I'm reading this book right now called White Fragility. And, oh, yeah, I read that. Yeah. oh, it's so good. But the author was making the point that, you know, black women didn't get the right to vote until 1965, along yeah. with all other black people. Right. Except that was only in certain states. She didn't write that sentence. I thought as clearly as she could, because some states, of course, uh, black women got the right to vote earlier. But yes, in the South. Exactly. Yeah, in the South. And it's after I was Born, right? I know, I know. My husband was born in 1964, so <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. Like, yeah, so that, and it's true, depending on our color, our um, gender preference, our sexual orientation, you know, where we fit in the culture. Do we fit? Like, I'm pretty mainstream. I'm, I'm straight, I'm white, I'm married. Uh, you know, I might have a little bit more feeling that my voice matters. Um, or that I can express my stories than someone who's trans. Or on the other hand, you know, I've got a lot of Southern background. <laughs> so that definitely uh, doesn't play to one's advantage sometimes. Yeah. So there are a lot of, yeah, cultural and systemic things that keep us from feeling like we can speak up and that our stories do matter. And, and while we need to know those and we need to have a political view of them, at the same time, we can't stop them from letting us bother, from mm -hmm. letting us tell our story. So we need to hold it in the con larger cultural historical context so that we don't take it personally. We don't do, you know, the, the self-help, oh, it's all up to me, it's all about me bullshit. Yes. But on the other hand, if we totally become, oh, well, it's just the culture, so I have no choice. I mean, whoa, that's, that's not a great way to go. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and I think it goes back to that idea of like, that we should bother to tell our stories despite all of the systemic and cultural stories and oppression that tells us not to. Exactly. So I'm curious, what change do you want to create in the world? You know, I'm, I've been, I'm working on a book and it is the third iteration and started off as a straight memoir and straight by, by straight, I mean a narrative arc, which mm -hmm. completely didn't work after I wrote 500 pages and spent four years on it. And then I reinvented that and thought, yes, I know what this book is about. I know what it is. I wrote some of the sample chapters for that, worked on that for about four months. My agent turned it down and and then I was like, oh, I don't care. I don't, you know, who, who the hell cares if she turns it down? I'll find someone else or I'll publish it myself. And I realized, nope, that still isn't it. And then the third iteration, which I'm, oh, like three quarters of the way through and I think is really working. And one of the stories in that was, is the story of me rejecting my own work for so many years. And for those of you who don't know, I wrote a bunch of self-help books. I was the first person to really write about self-care in, in the popular context. I did a lot of teaching and retreats and keynotes and, you know, had a pretty big platform doing that for like 12 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. The whole time, I felt like a fake. And I used to think it was just the whole imposter syndrome. Yeah. I mean, there was some of that for sure and lots of things to untangle with that. But one part of it was I never really owned how much I wanted to change the world so women could truly get to make what they wanted. Mm. And it wasn't until I was writing a story of my father telling my mother she couldn't work. Um, I was about 16 and she really wanted to take this job in a high-end gift store. And he said, absolutely not. I want you home. When I come home, I want you to be able to travel when I want to travel. And my dad was a hero. I loved him. He was a great guy. making him sound like a, a dick, but he, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but he was from a very different generation. 
Mm-hmm. And um, that, the anger that I felt from that episode really shaped my work with women. But until I saw that, talk about owning our sort of origin stories for our business, right? Yeah. That I realized, oh my God, I, this really is my work. And yes, I want to iterate it. And yes, I want it to be, you know, there's things about the self-help industry that I've hated from the beginning and all of that's real. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing that I really care about that I've been, that I've been dissing. And that is that I, that I really want to, I want women to be able to make what they want. So that's why I want to change the world. <laughs> or look at the change I want to create in the world. Ooh, you want women to be able to make what they want. I mean, isn't that just so basic, but so true? Like whether we want to make great families or whether we want to make great businesses or want to make great blogs or businesses or social change movements, that's really what feminism comes down to, isn't it? I get to make what I want. Yes. Well, and it's so simple, but I feel like um, we, especially as women's women, we are the nurturers, um, and it's there's a lot of expectations put upon us about how we should operate in the world, and it feels so selfish to say, I'm going to make this thing. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I think that's probably why in so many ways my original work was around self-care and self-nurturing because, you know, I started, that first book was published in 1992. And, you know, when I would go out and speak about self-care, people would raise their hand and say, well, I get my nails done. (laughs) Yes. And I'd be like, I think there's something more I'm pointing to. (laughs) But, you know, it really took me a few years to articulate it. I got interviewed for a New York Times article a few weeks ago. I don't know. I don't. I haven't been fact-checked for it, so I don't know if, if I'm in it or I can't uh-huh. But she wanted to interview me because sort of was like, you're the first person to talk about self-care. And one of the questions was like, how, how do you think like the current self-care perception or I don't know what we want to call it, movement or how does it need to change or what is it missing? And I'm like, you know, it's great. Women, millennials and younger, they really don't seem to have the guilt that the women I worked with in the beginning do. But I don't know that they're connecting it to the deep questions of what is my life about and how do I strengthen and nurture that. And I don't know if we're always connecting it enough to helping all women get to take care of themselves. Yes. Well, and I think when we have the, I want to make what I want to make, and I want to, you know, I want to create that, we really are helping other women do the same, whether it's like we're modeling that for people, or we're getting more resources so we can support other women in doing what they want to do in this world. I think all of that is so important. Michelle, that is, I mean, really, when you look at the evidence-based models for how do we change the world, giving money and giving money appropriately doing your research is number one. Mm-hmm. And I, I, sometimes I, I, you know, I, that to me is like, if my business can be successful and I can give more money away, I mean, I'm not saying we don't also need to look at our consumption and what do we buy and what kind of businesses do we just support and how do we, you know, contact our legislators and all that stuff is super important but to really have an impact you know if we have successful businesses and we can give away 10 percent or 20 percent of what we earn mm-hmm. as well as support businesses and and right livelihoods and that, that at least don't damage the planet yeah. uh, wow that's incredible I know. It's amazing. So I wanted to back 
backtrack and ask you one question that I found fascinating as you were talking about this book project. You said that you abandoned a 500-page <laughs> book. What did that feel like? How was that process? You know, it was interesting. I made a lot of mistakes on that book that I won't let any of my clients ever make, but uh, or try not to let them make it. Um, so when I finally, I, I had been working with a coach and, and all the feedback I was getting was great. And then, but I had this inkling that it wasn't working and that I don't know whether she wasn't reading it enough or, or she was too impressed by me or what was going on. Mm. But anyway, I hired somebody else who I really trusted and paid her to read the whole thing. It took her three days to write me the email and say, this does not work. And I was so relieved because I think <laughs> I knew, I knew. And it felt like I ran, I ran around. I mean, I cried and I was bummed. I, I read the email, I think right before I got on an airplane. <laughs> and, um, but then I had started having this song in my head, ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. <laughs> so I think there was just a part of me that was like, just knew that, um, boy, that wasn't working. But I don't regret writing it because it changed me so much as a person. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would be the person I am today who is now writing this book. I wouldn't have the insights that I had. I think I'm so much happier and more resilient. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could have made this move from the Pacific Northwest to Colorado as successful as it's been. So I don't regret it, but I think I probably could have done it about half the time. <laughs> Yes, because that's, I mean, a long ass time. <laughs> yeah, that was a really long ass time that you were working on a project that ultimately didn't work. But yeah. well, there, there are stories that are coming out into this book. Oh. So, you know, maybe 20 or 30% of this book will, will have been sourced directly from that book. So it's not a total loss, but ugh. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think this goes back to this idea of like when you create what you want to create, sometimes you have to abandon your creation because you realize along the path that you're not creating the right thing. Right. Or you don't, you know, you got off, you know, you got off the path. You didn't ask the right questions at the beginning. I'm, I work with a small group of writers at a private mastermind and we're, we're, we just started about three weeks ago and well when y'all listen to this it'll we'll be through the first part of it but and um you know i'm asking them really hard i'm giving them really hard homework like who's your reader and why are you writing this and what is in it for you and what's in it for the reader why should the reader yes. and what's the point and that some people it's not those are not hard questions other people want to stab me <laughs> Oh, I know. Well, those are some of the, those are similar questions I ask when I'm working with a business on mm -hmm. their messaging and their three word rebellion. And mm -hmm. they're like, oh, these are hard questions. I'm like, yes, but that's how you actually connect with your people. It's how you connect with your reader. It's how you connect with your clients is really by understanding their experience. Mm -hmm. And choosing. I mean, one of the things I see a lot of the women I work with, not, not all of them, but a lot, they have a really hard time choosing. And I'm not quite sure what that is about. Mm. Um, I coached one of the writers today, and I said, you know, when that voice comes up and says, but what about this idea? What about that story? And just, just, just be very loving with that voice and say, I know that you have a lot to offer, and let me just jot that down for right now. Uh, I'll jot that down, and, and we'll look at it later. We're not we're not killing that idea or that story, but right now we're focused on this section or this chapter. 
Yes. Well, and I think that's great advice because I often find that with my clients too. They're all like, but I have this idea and I'm multi-passionate and I want to do all of the things. And I'm like, I understand that and you will eventually, but for now you have to focus on one thing. Otherwise you confuse the crap out of people. <laughs> you, confuse, you know what? It's not that we're not all multi-passionate, but my yes. business doesn't have to I mean, I don't know, maybe Yo-Yo Ma isn't, maybe he's just passionate about the violin, but um, we have to present something that's easy for people to explain in their minds, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, if you meet me on the street, you're going to immediately have a picture of who I am, whether it's, it's not the whole of who I am, but you're going to be like, oh, middle-aged woman, blah, 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 you know, athletic, um, likes to shop at Bowdoin, <laughs> right? Likes bright colors. Um, and uh, has a big gray streak in her hair. Okay, yeah. interesting. You know, so you're going to have all these associations and ideas that are going to be instantaneous. That's the way our brains work. We have to work with that Mm -hmm. And we have to be willing to know that that isn't the whole of who we are. And I used to try to do this. I used to try to cram everything I was interested in, in into my business, and that that didn't work. No, no, and it's <laughs> and okay. Not writing a book either. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's that's so key. It's like it's okay not to cram everything in and to have one focus for a season, knowing full well that your focus will probably evolve and develop over time. And it's allowed to, and you don't have to make a big ding-ding-do about it and telegraph to the whole world that you changed your brand yet again. Just start talking about what your new thing is. What your yeah, take them on the journey with you. Exactly. exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. So my final question for you, and this one's always the doozy. So if everyone acted on your message, on this idea that women should be able to create whatever they want to create, what would the world be like? Well, I think men and <laughs> other people would have to step up and help with the third shift. Mm -hmm. I think women would be paid uh, on par or whatever. There wouldn't be the pay difference. Yes. Um, I think that we would have, um, I guess that sort of the image that comes to me is just this flow of more aliveness because we wouldn't be holding ourselves back. Mm -hmm. um, I would hope that we would have less compare and despair um, we would have more like, yes, I love the work you're doing. And I'm, I'm really, I, I'm more a sense of generosity because I am over here, you know, writing my poetry or, you know, crafting my garden or whatever it is. It doesn't have to be, you know, a business or make money to make what you want. So a, a sense of well-being and lightness and more aliveness in the world. And, and then I would hope, and, and this may be very Pollyanna of me, that the more we did that, the more we would want to work to help others have the same possibilities. You know, whether it's women in this country who, you know, are living in a gun violent neighborhood with, you know, in a food desert with working three below minimum wage jobs, or whether it's a woman in another country or 
you know, that it would continue to fuel our desire for social justice without draining us. Because it definitely one of the things I see, and this is a chapter I've written in my new book, Western women are not going to save the world. Because one of the things I see is that the sort of women not bothering about what they want to make because they think if they don't save the world first or because they weren't able to save the world and they got burned out or sick, mm-hmm. now they're not allowed to make what they want. So finding that balance, that sort of savoring life and making what you want and, and letting that help you naturally serve. I mean, I don't know. That might be Pollyanna. No, I think that's beautiful. I always say you should really go big with this question. Well, and having- And having that vision of when we're able to make what we want, when we're able to, when we're able to have more resources, then we're able to do more good in the world. Like we have more bandwidth, we have more to give. So that way that change actually ripples out from us to other people. And I think that is the beauty of it. Yeah, that's what I would hope. And I think even more fundamental than that, the sense of when we really own our desires and we really own our voices and our stories, however we want to put it, it always sounds a little cliched, is that it's so empowering, also a cliche word, that we sort of, it just kind of ripples out from us. We're like, come on, everybody should get to do this. And then hopefully you know, that motivates us in a a deeper, more sustainable way. So Jen, I have loved this conversation and you'll have to come back when your book launches. But in the meantime, tell us where can people find you online? Oh, you can always find me at Jennifer Loudon, L-O-U-D as in dog, E-N.com. There's great freebie there. This really cool ebook that I wrote that I just love. I'm on Facebook and... I've been on Twitter and then I kind of went away from it. I'm trying to make myself go back and Instagram. Instagram's always good to see pictures of my dog. <laughs> oh, I love Instagram too. Yeah, you can always see pictures of my cats on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> and I just went on a I just went on a five a day offline, off grid, silent solo writing retreat. And I had this red fox. I was up at 10,600 feet. This red fox came and visited me twice. So you can go on Instagram and see pictures of the fox. <laughs> Ooh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the Rebel Rising podcast. This has been an amazing conversation. Oh, my pleasure, Michelle. Thank you so much for listening to the Rebel Rising Podcast. If you enjoyed the show and find it valuable, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you leave us a review, you help more people find the show. For more information on working with me on your three-word rebellion messaging or your keynote speech and speaker marketing, go to drmichellemazur.com. See you next time, Rebel Riser.